a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very good. Expanding reality. reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have Jeff Drum. He is the author of a book called The Land of Chem, which is uh, subtitled there, The Initiation into Ancient Chemistry Through the Degrees of the Egyptian Pyramids. So already, guys, straight out the gate, super dope episode. He does an entire visual presentation. If you want to go check that out, linked below will be the website. You can either get to the YouTube from there or just go to the YouTube. Video will be in both locations for you. Highly suggest that you go uh, utilize that feature. It is awesome. He does a wonderful job. Easily one of the coolest unknown perceptions about the purpose of the pyramids ever. It's fascinating. And it doesn't conflict with anything else, which makes it even more fascinating. The dude knows his shit. He knows his history. He's an awesome guy. So uh, for more about this show in particular, like I said, link in the bottom for the website. That's where links to all the socials will be, as well as to our uh, t-shirts. We have shirts and such. Anything you can slap an Expanding Reality logo on will be linked down below, uh, as well as there you can find Rockfin. So check out Rockfin for our premium content, as well as the premium content of all sorts of other amazing content creators, guys. It's like 10 bucks a month. Great way to support your local podcaster or whoever you want uh, to check out their premium stuff, the things that they offer uh, that's a little extra, a little special. So um, again, uh, this is an amazing episode, guys. So let's just get right to it. The great, uh, amazing presenter, Jeffrey Drum. All right, everybody, welcoming to the show. It is good friend, Jeff Drum. How are you, dude? I'm doing very well, sir. I really appreciate you having me on. Good. Geoff, of course, my are... cats, as soon as we get started, my cats start jumping up on the table. So. That's how this works. Don't worry about it. I got four dogs running around here. Uh, Mama's gone right now, so they're in the room with me, and then they just oh, you yeah. know, <laughs> lose it if they're not. So uh, they're hanging out. So we'll have some cats and dogs action. This is a pet-friendly show, my friend. Please just uh, let them be a part of the conversation. And it's pretty cool that your subject matter is Egypt and pyramids, and you've got cats running around there. That's pretty dope. And we'll we'll definitely get to this because you are an awesome author, man. You wrote this great book, Land of Chem. And uh, we're definitely going to get into a little bit further. I know you have some uh, a presentation and some slides here for us. So for the audio only audience, if you'd like to uh, head on over to the website linked in the show notes or YouTube and check out the video version of this. It's going to be super dope. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm incredibly impressed with his <laughs> YouTube channel and his book already. Uh, Thank so, you. I'm going to get out of your way here, man, but just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and uh, what got you started and why you're doing it. Cool. Well, I really appreciate it again. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for just giving me this opportunity to talk about the book. Uh, this is the second interview that I've done regarding the book. So I'm a little bit nervous, but um, you know, kind of work in progress. Um, so a little bit of background about me and how I got interested to in all this stuff. So 
I'm what you would call maybe a guy who has probably a bit of an Indiana Jones complex. And I think I may have said that before in our conversations. You know, I grew up watching the Raiders of the Lost Ark with my dad, and I was always fascinated by Egypt and the Egyptian pyramids. And it was one of my life's greatest aspirations was to one day finally get a chance to go to Egypt and do some hands-on research. And it was like around the 2012 timeframe where everybody that I know, specifically people of our age range, were going through kind of a spiritual reformation, right? It was the end of the Aztec calendar and this rebirth of the age of the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And I started to get into all sorts of different esoteric pursuits and learning about these alternative theories and this, that, and the other. And you know, developing my own ideas about spirituality, about ancient history and all this kind of good stuff, which included researching the Egyptian pyramids, really diving into learning about the configuration and some of the alternative theories about the structure. And of course, I was researching all of those theories that regard, you know, the the Great Pyramid being utilized to produce electricity. And I was looking at a couple of different theories. And then all of a sudden in 2017, the universe presented me with a a series of unusual circumstances, which ended up with me going on my first trip to Egypt. I had just broken up with an ex-girlfriend and I was working for an IT company and I had a huge commission paycheck one month. And I was like, you know what? I'm finally going to do it. And I just booked a flight, booked a hotel. And I found our guide, Yusuf Awian. Um, and Yusuf is like the gatekeeper in Egypt for the alternative theories regarding the Egyptian pyramids. Um, his father was one of the preliminary um, tour guides in Egypt. He actually toured with George Bush and all these, you know, very, very famous people from the American government. So he's like a legacy tour guide in Egypt. So I reached out to Yusuf because I knew that he was the guy that I wanted to work with. And so we get to Egypt and, you know, we're looking around the sites and I'm kind of looking for the evidence regarding the connection between the pyramids and electricity. And it just wasn't there like I expected it to be. But I very quickly realized as we began to investigate some of these sites that there was a different story to be told about these structures. And it regards, um, you know, the production of chemicals on an industrial scale. Um, so even from a perspective of conventional archaeology, right, we know that Egypt was the birthplace of chemistry, and that's, that's very well accepted in the conventional narrative of history. So they were the first to produce synthetic pigments. They were producing cosmetics. They were making paper. They were making pharmaceuticals. And all of these things are chemical compounds. And people sometimes forget that the dynastic Egyptian civilization was a massive civilization. So if they had the knowledge to produce these chemicals on a small scale, it just seemed to make very much sense to me that they would also be implementing this knowledge on a large scale within these structures to produce chemicals that were essentially for the benefit of the civilization. We'll talk about the Red Pyramid and it producing ammonia for fertilizer. And again, that just made the most sense to me. And it was something that was compatible with what we know of the dynastic Egyptian civilization, but also the possibility of them having inherited these structures from a civilization that predated the dynastic Egyptian civilization. See, and I definitely go with you on that. I knew that, I, you know, that was a question I had for you. How old are the damn things? Because with Robert Schock's work, um, you know, with them dating the uh, Sphinx alone, definitely older than the pyramids, but also, like you said, not connected to any dynastic that we can really do. I mean, Egyptology has their way of doing it. I think there's a lot of psychological operation type stuff going on in there. But sure. that's just my opinion because of the things that they will blatantly disregard, the copper tubing, you know, and all that stuff, yep. which also is another question I had for you as you were talking about this. 
And your contention is, which I find a fascinating one, and uh, we're definitely going to get into your work because you can really back this up. And I, like I said, find it fascinating. Uh, so could they have been both? Could they have both produced chemicals at some p- capacity, but also been an electric generator as well? And maybe they were producing some sort of chemical or substance through the same processes that you've discovered that would also maybe mirror uh, to any chemical uh, pneumonia or any of these uh, type of processes could be applied to different things. Now, when you add the component of it being a structure that also generates electricity, perhaps, then maybe that combination uh, makes some sort of really cool stuff. Now we're talking about like maybe the liquid and stargates and things like that. Like maybe yeah. there's something <laughs> super paranormal and dope that they could make out of the combination of those two things. So right. your hypothesis does not necessarily rule out the fact that they were for electricity, possibly. It just doesn't state that they were exclusively used for that or that you're presenting an alternative method for what they could be used for as well. Right. So um, I will give you kind of an exclusive preview to some of the research and experiments that we were doing during this particular trip. Right. So this is just the first book in what will eventually be a series of the Land of Chem series. So the title of the first book is An Initiation into Ancient Chemistry Through the Degrees of the Egyptian Pyramids. And that's really what it is, is just kind of an introduction to this ancient science of chemistry. And of course, I do believe that these are multifunctional structures, right? So the components on the inside of the pyramid serve one purpose, but the pyramids themselves and the construction thereof also serves another purpose. And you may have seen this on my Instagram. So I have, you know, YouTube channel, The Land of Chem, Instagram at The Land of Chem. And I posted a very short clip of some experiments we were doing. So our friend Yusuf has this machine and it's called the life stream generator. And you can look into this, the, the website is called zero point research. And I have no affiliation with the machine itself. And the description of how this machine operates is very, very vague on the website. But long story short, it's technology that was produced by Nikola Tesla. And it transforms alternating current from the socket into direct current in this machine. And it creates an electromagnetic energy field. Right. So that's what this machine does. And we were taking samples of the geology that was utilized in the construction of the temples and the pyramids. We had samples of limestone. We had samples of red granite. We had samples of black basalt. We had samples of calcite crystal and testing the properties of the stone in proximity to the electromagnetic field generated by this machine. And the results were a little bit counterintuitive. So if you take a piece of copper wire and touch it to the top of the machine, there is no electrical discharge between the machine and the piece of copper wire. However, if you put a piece of limestone on top of that machine, the electromagnetic energy flows through the stone and it will produce an electrical discharge into the piece of copper wire. And I put a video up on my Instagram, just like a a minute long clip demonstrating this experiment. And again, the results were a little bit counterintuitive. I expected that the red granite that has particles of metal and quartz inside the stone would have been more of a conductive material. However, what this experiment proves is something called electromagnetic um, interference or electromagnetic impedance, right? So in the limestone, limestone is made of calcium carbonate and there's nothing in that material that prevents the flow of electromagnetic energy through the stone. So the stone is basically a conduit for that electromagnetic energy. 
However, when you go to the red granite, the red granite does not produce any discharge itself, but the red granite actually starts to resonate with that electromagnetic energy. And you can feel the field building up around the red granite as the machine starts to charge up. So it was a very interesting series of experiments and we did it with different um, layers and configuration of different types of stone. And we actually constructed a jed pillar, which is another very unusual artifact from ancient Egypt, which is basically a limestone pillar that has alternating rings of red granite and black basalt. And I have a kind of a work in progress theory of exactly what that was for. Um, but again, that was why we were doing those experiments to test them firsthand and kind of come up with some evidence for, for what I think these things are doing. But the chemical, the chemical production on the inside of the pyramids is just one aspect of the structures. There's, there's a lot more going on with these things. Yeah, absolutely. And whenever you talk about the limestone being conductive, but the red granite being kind of an amplifier of this magnetic spectrum, then the red granite blocks are what the blocks are made out of. But didn't it have limestone casing on the outside of it? So it would have been in combination. Yeah. So that Correct. that in combination Correct. would have been there and all that limestone is what scattered throughout, right? People. Right. So I, I want to make an important, important distinction, though. So it's not necessarily conductivity, right? It's just electromagnetic impedance. So with the Great Pyramid, for example, the body of the Great Pyramid was constructed with two different types of limestone. So you have the limestone inside the body of the pyramid, and then you have a different type of white limestone casing on the outside of the structure. Then when you go into the pyramid, the king's chamber and the antechamber of the, red, uh, the Great Pyramid are constructed from red granite. So again, that limestone is not offering any electromagnetic impedance for that flow of energy. So the energy just flows directly through the stone. It's not necessarily a conductor, but it doesn't prevent the transfer of that energy into the red granite that you find inside the body of the structure. So it's very interesting, the configuration of these different materials. And again, the properties of those stones, um, that'll all be coming out in the second book as soon as I get a chance to write the damn thing. <laughs> Does this guy know how to party or what? Nice right. job, man. This is awesome. Okay, cool. Well, I, I tell you what, then I'm going to get out of your way for a minute and let you get to your presentation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's do this. Um, so again, for the audio only audience, head on over to YouTube or the website. Uh, the video will be up on either spot. Um, and then there you go. Go check it out. So uh, Jeff, dude, I'll get out of your way, man. Go ahead. All right, man. So this is just kind of a quick presentation that shows how I came up with this material, some of the sites that we visited on my first trip to Egypt. And there's also going to be some exclusive pictures from my most recent expedition. So um, let's just jump right into it, man. Um, so of course, the title of the book is The Land of Chem. And man, this is just one of my favorite pictures from my, my recent trip to Egypt. And I cannot say enough how magical this place really is. And if you're interested in adventure and spiritual transformation and learning more about the, the secrets of the universe, I cannot recommend a better place to go than to Egypt. And hopefully next year, I'll be taking a group of folks with me so that we can go see all of these sites in person. So I'm really, really excited about that. It just This is just a freaking awesome picture that shows what it's like to be out in the middle of the desert. That is a badass picture. I will give you that. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. So um, the full title of the book is The Land of Chem, an Initiation into Ancient Chemistry Through the Degrees of the Egyptian Pyramids. And the title of the book is really just a play on words for the original name of Egypt, which was K-H-E-M, Chem. So, of course, now I'm just playing on the word and now it's the land of chemistry instead of the land of chem. 
And that original name for Egypt, K-H-E-M, refers to the black alluvial soil surrounding the Nile River Valley, right? So the flooding of the Nile River was essential to the Egyptian civilization. And part of my theory is that the Egyptian pyramids worked in conjunction with this Nile River flooding to produce these chemicals. So it just ties in that these two things work together. And there's also a tie into ancient alchemy, right? So the land of Chem, alchemy means from the blackness. And that's actually referring to a stage of the alchemical extraction process. You usually see three different stages represented, which is the negredo, the albedo, and the rubedo, the black, the white, and the red. So from the blackness, you use a chemical extraction process to extract the volatile compounds that are utilized for further reactions. And that's also a direct tie-in to the colors of the geology that you find in all the sites, because you have the white limestone, you have the red granite, and you have the black basalt. So I started researching the connection between chemistry and the pyramids and the structures. And I began to find all of these correlations that just encouraged me to believe that I was on the right path. So in terms of coincidence, I'm not one that really believes in coincidence. It's all things that happen as a part of the plan of the universe. So I didn't come up with any of these ideas. It just, as I started to pull on the little thread, the whole thing started to unravel. And then all of a sudden I had this wild idea that incorporated the function of all of the Egyptian pyramids. And that's one of my main critiques about some of the other um, theories is that they focus just on the great pyramid. You know, they don't take into account that there's probably 20 different major pyramids in Egypt. And all of these have a very different internal configuration, which implies to me that all of them had a unique function for each one of the pyramids. So the next thing in here, again, just diving into proving that the ancient Egyptians were masters of chemistry. They were experts in many applied fields of chemistry. As I mentioned before, they were making paper, they were making dyes, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, and you'll also see here metallurgy. And they were particularly adept at extracting metal from ore. So in all of these ancient civilizations, even in South America, you find extremely pure gold and silver, like 99.99% gold and silver. And it is impossible to achieve that level of purity from smelting. And the only way that you can get that level of purity is from a chemical extraction process. And what do you need to extract the, the metals? You got to have chemicals like acids and all of these other things. So again, that was an indication to me that the, they they were producing these things on an industrial scale based on the amount of metal that the civilization was using. So they also made the first synthetic pigment, and I'll show that here in just a second. And again, this is not my idea that the word chemistry can be chased to the name the ancients used when referring to Egypt. So that's conventionally accepted in normal archaeology and history. But again, I began to research all of these chemical compounds, and even with pigments, these are all sophisticated chemical compounds and chemical molecules. So even like iron chloride, cobalt nitrate, or copper sulfate, all of these metal salts produce very, very spectacular colors, but you need chemicals to be able to process it down and create these synthetic pigments. And the first synthetic pigment that was created by the dynastic Egyptians was calcium copper silicate. It was called Egyptian blue. And you see this color 
on all of the tombs and all of the paintings and all of these depictions are very, very heavily painted with this blue color. So you can't produce even this compound on a small scale because you're producing it on an industrial scale to be able to utilize it in all of the construction and painting of your monuments and civilizations. So even the fact that they were producing this is an indication that they had the capability of producing chemicals on an industrial scale. And so these are just a couple of awesome pictures, man. These are my favorite two um, displays at the Egyptian Museum. This first one here on the left is just showing those natural pigments and synthetic dyes that were created by the dynastic Egyptians. And then here on the right, this is a case that has all of the geological samples and it shows the chemical composition of all of these geological samples. And they thought that it was important enough to make a case and put it here in the museum, showing everybody the geology and the chemical compositions of the geology. So I just really love looking at these two particular cases because it's evidence on a small scale of what I'm talking about on a large scale through the Egyptian pyramids. And of course, I'm going to be diving into the geological composition and the function thereof um, at a later date. This is awesome, by the way. Uh, I appreciate it. And I apologize <laughs> if there's any delays no, 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 on the no, lag this is, here. This is cool right, shit. So let me jump back to this next picture because that one's really important. So this is a picture from my 2017 research trip to Egypt. So this is my first trip that I ever went there. Again, I was going to research the connection between these structures and electricity. But when we started to visit the sites, this is the first artifact that really changed my mind into the true purpose of these structures. So at all of these sites, you'll find conduits that are carved into miscellaneous types of stone. And these conduits run underneath the flooring of the temples that are adjacent to the pyramids. So my theory is that the temples either function as processing facilities for the raw materials that were utilized in producing the chemicals inside of the structure, or they function as collection sites for the chemical that was being produced inside of the pyramid. So this is a conduit that's carved from red quartzite. And this conduit runs through the floor of the temple and back towards the adjacent pyramid. And you can see here that whatever was being produced inside of the structure was being collected here in this quartzite collection bowl. So there's several other researchers that have implied that these conduits were used for drainage for removing water away from the site. Well, that's great, but if you were just draining water away from the site, why would you need to collect it in this collection bowl? Hmm. So again, this is, this is one of my favorite artifacts from Egypt that is literally like smoking gun evidence that they were collecting something that was being produced at these sites. I mean, and that bowl so ornately carved that, of course, why would they be? And that's not enough of a volume of a bowl to collect any kind of sustainable water if you wanted to utilize it for drinking. And if you wanted it to run off, you would just not have something there to collect it. And so, Correct. yeah, to your point, I like and how ornate and you can tell how much time they spent on that bowl and that uh, shaft, that conduit. And uh, yeah, sure. I, I'm seeing it more and more, man. Uh, I, all right, carry on. That's awesome. <laughs> and so there's there's also a reason that relates to the geology that's utilized, right? So if you're going to carve a conduit for drainage, you would just carve it out of limestone or the bedrock and not import 
this incredibly hard to work stone from far, far away, if it wasn't a functional part of what you were doing at the site. So again, that's evidence to me because you'll find these conduits carved in things like white calcite or red granite or the quartzite and the conduits leading away from the site are carved in limestone. And even here at Abu Sir, there are several conduits that lead away from the pyramid down the causeway towards the temple. However, those conduits were actually sheathed with copper piping. So again, that's an indication to me that whatever was flowing through that copper piping was not waste material or it was not drainage. All of this stuff was functional and I believe related to the production of chemicals. So this is a little chemical collection bowl. So whatever they were producing, just flow it out right here. And then you could collect whatever the chemical was that was being produced inside of the structure. Would you be able to go down that conduit a ways or would there be any residue to test for what kind of chemicals you can find in that? Or would it be long eroded? Oh, sure. So, I mean, um, you have to be very careful, right? In doing any sort of touching or excavating or sample collection or anything like that from these structures, right? Because it is highly, highly illegal to do that type of stuff. They don't want you finding out the truth. If you're meddling around and doing actual science, they'll they'll get upset at that because you're going to find the truth. Oh, for sure. Right. And you have to pay tons and tons of money to get special permission to access sites like this. Um, But I, I guarantee you, if you were to clear out this conduit and look back in there and see what's actually remaining in the conduit, because none of this has been excavated. This hole is like packed full of sand. Yeah. So there's really no way to see what goes back in there. And again, if they were really interested in finding out the truth of what this was, it would have been excavated already. They would have dug that channel out, find exactly where it leads to and, you know, do the investigation that's required to figure out what this is for. But again, it's kind of discarded and this site is not a public access site. Let me put it that way. This is so cool, dude. I'm just, I, I'm just seeing it now. Like <laughs> it's you a painting to... the picture of it and, and I've seen your slides or your presentation on your YouTube anyway. So I'm a little ahead of the crew here that's figuring you out for the first time, but uh, it's awesome. And just keep going. My bad. I'll get out of your way. Yeah, absolutely. And again, kind of, as I began pulling at the string, the story just became more and more fantastic as I went along with it. And every little step was encouragement that what I was doing was um, pretty legitimate. Um, So this is a picture from inside of the red pyramid. And this is one of the second structures that we got to go inside. And I had no idea that we were going to get a chance to go inside any of the pyramids except for the pyramids of Giza. So this was a big surprise to me. And as soon as you go inside this structure, there is nothing whatsoever inside of this pyramid that is compatible with a dynastic burial. There are no hieroglyphs. There are no inscriptions. There are no statues. And there is intense chemical staining that covers the walls inside of this chamber. And you can see here on the picture on the left, the chemical staining starts precisely at the bottom of the third tier. And you can see this very dark staining in the upper portion of the chamber. And I've discussed in detail the function of the Red Pyramid on my YouTube channel. And we also have an animation that demonstrates exactly how this pyramid would have operated. But long story short, so this is all functional architecture. And the engineering that went into designing these chambers 
was intentionally designed to facilitate chemical reactions. So I started looking at the volume of the chamber and some physics that might be involved in producing a chemical reaction. So let's say that the volume of this chamber significantly decreases as you get to the upper portion of the chamber, right? So in physics, you know, if you decrease the volume of a gas, you can increase its temperature and pressure. And I started looking into the configuration of the structure and the production of ammonia gas. And that's exactly what I believe was happening inside this structure is that they were using water to compress water insoluble gases into the upper portion of this chamber, which created a chemical reaction that moved through the structure that culminated in the production of ammonia inside of this final synthesis chamber. Damn, this is cool. This is it's so really wild. freaking cool. Yes, yes. And, and one of the most interesting things about this structure, so it still smells like ammonia inside of this structure. And the smell of ammonia is emanating from this final synthesis chamber. And it's, it's crazy. So we actually got down in this pit. So I'm standing in the center of a pit looking up at the top of this final reaction chamber. And there's been a lot of discussion about the smell and the staining of this structure coming from bats, right? And they say that the red pyramid was the bat pyramid and the smell and the staining comes from the bats. Well, we firsthand investigated several other sites in Egypt that are filled with bats, particularly Mastaba 17 at the Pyramid of Maidum. And you crawl down in this tiny little hole through this shaft into this underground chamber. And the underground chamber is filled with bats. There is not a single stain on any of the walls. And there is no smell whatsoever of ammonia inside of that chamber. So that conclusively proved that the smell inside of the Red Pyramid is not caused by bats because you don't find that in any of the structures that have bats in them today. So the pyramid's called Pyramid of My Doom. So that's that's actually another structure. So yeah, the one you're talking about though, the name of the the name of the pyramid you just said was Pyramid of My Doom. Correct. Is it yeah, my yeah. Doom? So these pictures are showing the. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that's a crazy name for a pyramid. Of course, it had a ton of bats in it, dude. It's called the Pyramid of My Doom. Like your doom is in there. That's why. Why would you go in there? Oh, so like not not like my doom, but like M E I D U M which is the title of the area where that pyramid is located. So these pictures are showing the red pyramid of Dashur. But if you go down to a place called the Fayum Oasis, there are several pyramids out at the Fayum Oasis, which is Hawara, Maidum, and Lahun. And the pyramid of Maidum was actually supposedly constructed by Seneferu, which is the same guy who built the red and the bent pyramids. And after investigating the Pyramid of My Doom, I believe that it was a test structure that was designed to demonstrate the physics and the chemical reactions that were eventually used in the Red Pyramid. Damn. So they had to do this at this scale because of, I mean, industrialization, right? They just had, they needed this volume of this material. Yeah. And that was um, one of the questions that came up on my YouTube channel was, you know, why were they producing chemicals on an industrial scale? And I kind of laughed at the question. I'm like, why wouldn't you? You know, if you have the knowledge to produce this stuff on a small scale. So, for example, the chemical ammonia, right? The word ammonia 
the etymology of that word relates directly back to Amon, the Egyptian deity Amon. And there was a place in Egypt called Ammonia, which is the area surrounding Ammon. And there's a place called the Temple of Jupiter. And they found evidence of small scale production of ammonia from camel dung. So we know, even according to conventional history and archaeology, that the Egyptians were the first people to produce ammonia. The word ammonia is directly related to Egypt from Ammon. It means emanating from Ammon. And Ammon is something that meant the hidden, right? So if you're, for example, my theory of the step pyramid being used to produce methane gas and the cattle manure being essential in the production of methane gas. So a gas is something that's hidden, right? And through a process of chemical extraction, you can remove this hidden compound. And again, I think I have that in some of the subsequent slides or that tie in with ammonia. Um, so there's some very interesting correlations between modern chemistry, our words for these chemicals, and dating back to the Egyptian civilization. Dude, that's amazing. So, so after we get through our day exploring the pyramids of, of Dashur, I started formulating this idea that the pyramids were essentially large chemical reactors, right? And if you look at the units of the chemical manufacturing process, it includes everything that you would see here on a small scale from reaction vessels to connecting shafts, inlet and outlet shafts. And you see all of those same components here in the Egyptian pyramids. So, and I'm pretty sure the next slide is my cue to tell you this crazy story. <laughs> so, <clears throat> well, with that laugh, we got to hear it now. What do you got? So, um, so I'm formulating this idea, right? And it's brand new in my mind that the Egyptian pyramids are large scale industrial chemical manufacturing structures. And we get back to the hotel that night and I had to go to the front desk to get like a key or something for my room. And I'm sitting there at the front desk in the lobby of the hotel. And all of a sudden I hear a Southern accent right behind me. And I immediately recognized it being from somebody who's from the area that I currently live in. I live in South Carolina and I knew it was somebody from South Carolina just by the accent. So I turn around and there's this dude standing there and I, I'm just getting chill bumps, just thinking about the story because it really, really creeped me out and it creeped my friend out too. And we were completely freaked out. So anyway, this guy, quote unquote guy, with his big old googly eyes was looking dead at me. And I turned around, I said, Hey man, I recognize your accent. Where are you from? And he happened to say that he was from the exact same city where I currently live. And we just so happened to land in the lobby of the hotel at the exact same time. And so I'm starting to get freaked out and I'm like, so yeah, what do you do in Egypt? He's like, well, I work for the TSA in Paris and I'm here on an extended vacation to come and tour Egypt. And I said, he just came by himself. And there were a bunch of inconsistencies with the story. So I'm the type of guy where if I'm intrigued by something, I'm going to invite you to sit and have a conversation with me. So we invited this guy to come to dinner with us. And again, he had these big old googly eyes. And um, again, to describe this person as being like a real dude. I mean, I, I don't even know to what to describe this person as being. But anyway. So we get down to dinner and we're sitting here by the pool, smoking some hookah and having dinner. And this guy comes and sits down and he starts to kind of probe me about my theories regarding the Egyptian pyramids. And I told him, well, I'm here researching the electricity. 
but I'm finding some stuff that's incompatible with that theory. And I came up with the theory that they're designed to produce chemicals. And he looked at me so matter of factly and said, of course, that's what they were for. Like no shock, no, no hesitation whatsoever. And he was just like, so matter of fact, and it, my friend and I were looking back at, at each other, like, what the hell is going on? Like, who is this person and how did he get here? So again, we're talking about the Serapium and you've heard of these large boxes in the Serapium, these containers that are buried underground. Yeah. Aren't they the black um, granite? Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're made out of all sorts of different stone, but they're these massive containers. And we started talking about my theory and he was like, well, they're for storage of waste material. And like my mind was completely blown at this point. And again, I remember looking at this guy dead in his big old googly eyes. And I was like, is this even a real human being? Like, who am I talking to right now? Yeah, it's like some weird men in black kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's like a real strange phenomenon. They knew too much about you. They're kind of sidled up by themselves. Did he move awkward? So everything about this individual was very, very strange Um, from his accent to his physical appearance um, to his matter of fact already knew about what the theory was before I even said it. And By the way, like, I've never heard yeah. anyone say that theory except for you. That's This is such a sure. niche thing. I've never even heard of this before, which is why I'm having you, man. Plus, you're just badass. So I was like, yeah, we got to talk about this. But how did he know that that was even a theory? Because I've never, I mean, I don't know everything and I know that, but I look into this stuff quite a bit and I think I would have come across this by now. And, and I looked into it a lot. Like as I was developing this theory, I checked and scoured the internet to see if anybody had ever talked about this before. And I couldn't find anything. So again, I just wanted to share that story because I thought you would think it was pretty cool. And again, I have like huge goosebumps all over my body now, just even thinking about the story because I was, I was really thoroughly creeped out by it. I mean, this is all of 15 minutes after I started developing the theory. So it was fresh on my mind and it was, it completely blew my mind that this individual um, already knew about it. And then of course he gives me his contact information to hit up on on hangouts. And I've tried to contact him several times and he literally disappeared into thin air after our dinner that night. So a very unusual experience. He got into a 1960s sedan and just drove off with his other creepy counterpart. <laughs> yeah, this exactly. is a men in black type deal, dude. They're not just men in black suits and stuff. You hear this with like weird uh, children, animals, stuff like that, where there's just an odd, like your intuition goes, uh-uh, this person isn't a person or something, right. you know? And uh, so, yeah, that's what it sounds like, especially with how specific he was about your theory, because like I said, I, I don't know everything, but I would have come across this by now. Like you're the first person I've ever heard talk about this. So it's just odd. You know what I mean? Um, okay, cool. We'll carry on, brother. Right. And there's, um, yeah, so there's, there's also kind of another conspiracy theory that lies within all of this stuff. And I think I'm going to get to that here in just a moment. But again, it's, it was a series of very unusual coincidences that at some point they cease to be coincidence and they start to be correspondence or correlation, right? It more becomes proof than just some arbitrary happenstance. Synchronicity. Exactly. So this is what I was talking about before with the three stages of the alchemical process, the negredo, the albedo, and the rubedo. And again, this is just part of my research and developing the theory. I was like, oh, so the black, the white, and the red. And you see this reflected in every single structure in Egypt. There's black basalt, there's white limestone, and there's red granite. And again, that black, white, and red carries through the alchemical traditions of the Middle Ages 
And we know that our modern day chemistry is a direct result of what those individuals were doing um, in practicing alchemy. So this is just some of my other research. And in the final chapter of the book, I talk about the passage chamber structures of Ireland. And I do believe that all of these ancient structures across the planet are connected through the science of chemistry. And the time frame that I use in the book is I'm very interested in the end of the last ice age, like 10,000 BC, the massive catastrophe that ended the civilization on North America. And my theory in the book is that the survivors of that massive catastrophe that ended the last ice age fled and they established civilizations across the rest of the globe. And you see this in all of the mythology in like Europe, in South America, in Japan, that they have the arrival of these creator gods and the creator gods come with math and science and technology. And that knowledge included the production of chemicals and the construction of these sites. And then you start seeing the building of the pyramids and these other sites across the planet. But so these images, so these mounds here tied directly into the final chapter of the book. When I discuss the passage chambers of Ireland, like Newgrange, which I believe was also designed to produce chemicals. And you see here, this structure is very reminiscent of like the step pyramid. And you have your chemical reactions incur occurring inside of the structure. So again, I was just researching the connection between alchemy, chemistry, and the Egyptian pyramids. And I began to find all of these very interesting uh, correspondences or relations between those two things. It is super interesting. And just before you move on, not of this, not much of this is considered whenever you talk about something like a UFO phenomenon or something, because strangers coming from far places telling people who are not as, I guess, quote, civilized as them, you know, letting them believe that they're gods or even telling them that flat out and then offering this kind of stuff. And then they'd be revered and then taken care of and they could exploit kind of the natural resources and the labor of the area just yep. based on some knowledge they had from a civilization that was disconnected uh, in some way. That's interesting, man. You could really, yeah, pose as a god. I mean, if you showed up right now, you took a time machine back and you showed up in ancient times with a lighter, you'd be revered as a god, you know? Or you'd be stoned to death oh, yeah. as a witch. I mean, you just have to kind of pick your time yeah. period. <laughs> so um, I often say there's a great quote. I think it's Arthur C. Clarke that any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Yep. And that's one of the themes in my book and on my YouTube channel is that ancient magic was, in fact, chemistry. Because a practitioner of chemistry in the ancient times, you know, you're creating fire and all these different colors and reactions of metals that create sparks and all of these chemical reactions. A practitioner of chemistry would have appeared to someone that was uninitiated in the science to be a magician because those powers were literally transmutation of the elements and creation of something out of nothing. So you hear all these stories of like ancient weapons that involve fire or lightning and all of this spectacular fire. And there's a story from ancient Ireland about the Tua de Danann, which are the mythological inhabitor gods from ancient Ireland. And they had a mythological weapon called the spear of Lou. And the spear had to be submerged in water to keep it from spontaneously igniting. Well, when I heard that story, that immediately reminded me of phosphorus and the discovery of phosphorus because phosphorus has to be kept submerged in oil and water, because if you remove it, it will spontaneously ignite in oxygen. And it's a very, very powerful chemical weapon. 
So again, if you look at the connection between this ancient magic and the science of chemistry, there's a very, very interesting connection between those two things. And I talk about that in the book as well. You do. And ideologically, all of this checks out, dude. This is really, really interesting. Uh, thank you, man. So um, my next step in researching was to figure out more about the Red Pyramid because this one really inspired me. It was the one that I had the most physical research on. And I had spent a lot of time in this structure during my first trip to Egypt. And we always spend as much time as possible inside of here just because I really love it. So I started looking at the configuration of these chambers. I've kind of mentioned before that these are used to manipulate the temperature and pressure of water insoluble gases inside of these chambers. So the whole thing starts with methane gas, which I was believe, believe was produced inside of the step pyramid. And that methane gas was utilized here in the red pyramid for the production of ammonia. Hang I don't know if you can hear that. My cat's going nuts on a box in the background, just like scratching this thing to pieces. It's okay. But nonetheless, so I started looking into the beginning of the industrial revolution and how we moved from producing these chemicals on a small scale to what we have now in our industrial manufacturing of chemicals. And it made a huge difference in the progress of our modern society was the discovery of how to produce ammonia on an industrial scale. Because that really changed pretty much everything we know about modern food production was the production of industrial scale fertilizers. So I started investigating again. Oh, so these are two great pictures. So these are original photos from inside of the red pyramid before these chambers were cleaned and before the wooden plank flooring and the staircase in the second chamber were installed. And you can really see the flow pattern here on the left. When you're inside it, you can really see that the staining pattern moves from the upper portion of the vault and it flows through this connecting shaft into the second chamber, which again was an indication of the fluid dynamics that were involved in the operation of the structure and moving the reactions from chamber one to chamber two. So the Egyptians were masters of hydraulics and of fluid dynamics. And I believe that the hydraulics and water were actually utilized in the construction of these pyramids themselves. Um, but it was also used to facilitate and move those chemical reactions throughout the structure. And you can see here on the right side, all of the intense chemical staining that is on the Southern wall of the second chamber inside of this pyramid. And there's actually a large hole in the floor here, which I believe was the drainage shaft utilized to drain the water out of this chamber after that production cycle was completed. But again, nobody can tell me that this staining was created by bats because that's just not the way it works. Damn, dude. I mean, it's, it's incredibly compelling, especially when you point out the flow of the stain pattern. That makes a lot of sense. And yes, before it was clean. Let me ask you a real quick question before you move on. What's that writing underneath the lower ledges? Or is that writing? Oh, yeah. So this is actually written by um, like the, the first people that explored the pyramids in the early 1900s, like Balzoni or even during the Napoleonic era. They, these people went in and wrote graffiti all over the inside of these structures. And this was done by, quote unquote, researchers who were going to explore the pyramids and develop the science of what we now know as Egyptology. So in the early 1900s, like Howard Carter and all these guys, these were treasure hunters and people that were looking to make a name for themselves 
as the discoverers of these pyramids or this, that, and the other. So they had no investment in looking at these structures to determine what they were really for. And this also happened before the modern industrial revolution. So they would have had no concept of evaluating these structures from a chemical engineering perspective because it simply hadn't happened yet. So they would have had no idea that these could have possibly been for anything else other than pharaonic burials, because we as a civilization hadn't gone through the modern industrial revolution where we were producing chemicals on an industrial scale. And I think that's one of the important things about reevaluating these structures is taking the knowledge that we have today and applying it to reverse engineering these pyramids, because the people that developed the science of Egyptology, they didn't have that knowledge. Damn. I mean, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So again, another interesting thing is, so the practitioners of chemistry from ancient Egypt moved into the civilizations of Greece and Rome. They also moved into the middle, um, you know, the medieval, medieval ages and, you know, the 1300s to the 1600s. And the science of chemistry had to be hidden under the veil of alchemy because you could very much be burned at the stake or killed for practicing any sort of science during that time period. But it was the same practitioners taking the knowledge from Egypt, moving into the Middle Ages, and then at the dawn of the modern industrial revolution, it was the same group of families that were practicing this thing, and it eventually became the Royal Society of Chemistry, and our modern um, concept of chemistry officially began established. Jesus, this is cool. So it's, a, it's an interesting lineage and development of the science of chemistry tracing from ancient Egypt. Um, so again, yeah, this is just kind of, I pulled this from the etymology online dictionary that proves that the word ammonia is directly related to the Egyptian god Ammon. And as I mentioned before, at this temple of Jupiter, they, were, um, they found deposits of sal ammoniac and the evidence of small-scale ammonia production being created from this camel dung. So again, that's not something that I'm creating. It's just, this is literal history and archaeology. And again, here, the name Amun, whose hieroglyph is featured above, may derive from the meaning invisible or hidden, not unlike the very gas in which his name surprisingly lives on. So Amun and these Egyptian deities and the names of them so as with all great esoteric teachings, there are always levels of interpretation. There is a layer of interpretation that is intended for the consumption of the general public, usually related to religion or spirituality. But then when you dig deeper and uncover the, the, the deeper levels of these interpretations, you can see that it may also be traced to the science of chemistry. So here's where it gets really interesting, right? So this is the original apparatus that was developed in the early 1900s that eventually began our industrial production of modern day ammonia. So if you look at the configuration of this apparatus, you have an inlet sh shaft here. You have two chambers at an equal level with a connecting shaft between them. And then you have a third and final synthesis chamber that is elevated above the other two. So can you see that configuration? Oh yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so take a look at this. 
This is the configuration of that original apparatus that was designed to produce ammonia gas compared to the configuration of the red pyramid. So what do we see here on the left? You have an inlet shaft going into the first chamber. What do you have here in the red pyramid? Inlet shaft going into the first chamber. You have a connecting shaft that links the first two chambers. That is exactly what you have here in this apparatus. And then your third and final synthesis chamber is elevated above the other two. You see that reflected here in the configuration. Now, the guy who designed this could have made it in any configuration whatsoever that he wanted. However, I believe that this was done as an homage to the place from whence it originally came, because this structure was producing ammonia on an industrial scale, as was this modern day apparatus made out of metal. So you think the guy that made this knew that the Egyptian pyramids and maybe all pyramids were used this way? So I did some research and that's where the quote unquote conspiracy theory behind all of this. And I won't say who it is, but again, if you know anything about ammonia production, you'll immediately know who it is. Um, but let's just say I found out that the individual that created this apparatus was actively involved in researching the Egyptian pyramids and the original financier of this project is an Egyptian banker. Mm -hmm. So all the money to fund this project came from Egypt and it was because somebody was directly investigating these structures. They're like, look, we, we can help you out. Uh, build it like this. We'll give you the cash. It's all good. Yeah. Just follow the money. That's crazy, dude. Exactly. And they, they took the knowledge that was extrapolated from the configuration of these chambers again, using pressure and temperature to create chemical reactions. And they implemented it in this apparatus because that's exactly how modern day ammonia production works is you put the gases in this chamber, you increase the temperature and pressure to facilitate chemical reactions. Nowadays, we use electricity and catalysts to make the reaction move much faster. But if a reaction is going to happen with the catalyst, it will still happen without it. It just goes much slower. And I've never implied that the Egyptian pyramids produce chemicals with the efficiency that we have today. But the whole point is that they could actually produce chemicals. And I worked with a chemical engineer as I was developing this theory. And he's a gentleman, again, PhD level chemical engineer that has multiple patents in the field of chemical engineering. And I showed him a very similar presentation with all of my research and he basically told me he was going to treat me like a grad student presenting my dissertation. And he tore this theory to pieces, literally analyzing every single detail and chemical reaction and explanation that I had of the process. And at the end of the day, he was thrilled with the theory, so much so that I was able to put his name in the introduction of my book. And he you know, commended me for coming up with the most scientifically valid theory regarding the Egyptian pyramids, because some of the other ones, it's it's not compatible with physics and chemistry. I can't argue with you. I mean, you get the uh, cons inconsistency of the piezoelectricity kind of theory because it's kind of dependent upon the aquifers below. I don't know that they they probably figured that out, but I, I'm with you. This is the most um, sustainable theory. I mean, it, it's it's fascinating, dude. I really appreciate that, man. And it's kind of, um, it's a labor of love. We were talking before about all the work that goes into making these YouTube videos and stuff. And, you know, this is something that truly resonates to me as having a grain of truth. Um, of course, the Land of Chem book is, a, it's a fictional story. And it was just a way for me to kind of paint the bigger picture 
And so originally my intention was to write a research paper, but I have no qualifications whatsoever to write a technical document like that. So I gave this material and this presentation to my dad, who's a retired army colonel and like, he's a bit of a hard ass, right? So he gave me a real hard time about this as well. And at the end of the presentation, he was like, well, dude, why don't you just write a story? And there's a great quote by Rudyard Kipling that if history were told in the form of stories, then it would never be forgotten. And that was kind of my intention in writing this fictional narrative was just to paint the picture. And it's essentially a monologue contained within the narrative of the story that explains exactly how these structures operated. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I mean, um, I love the story aspect of this because they do this all the time. That's how we know that, you know, um, inner earth exists, right? That our planet's hollow because it was oh, in I the love King that Kong. theory. Yeah, it was in King Kong and um, Godzilla movie recently, and it was awesome. So they're, they're telling you through story form that that's what's going on. And just like this, like your book and your book's awesome, man. Uh, of course, guys, I'll link all this stuff down below. So just check it out. Uh, it's definitely worth the read. It's very entertaining, but very, very interesting. I appreciate that, man. I can, I assure you that there is some legitimate science contained within this research. It wasn't something that I just arbitrarily put together. Um, so the book is a, it's a short story, you know, it's only 70 pages, but it took me the better part of 10 years to research this material. And it took me four years to re research and write that little bit of a book. Um, so it was a lot of work that went into putting this together. And I made sure that before I put this material out there, that it was scientifically valid and critiqued by someone that has the credentials to make sure that I was talking about the right stuff. So this is a, a spectacular diagram of the ancient Harbor of Saqqara. And so the Nile river flooding, when the river flooded, it would have brought the water level all the way up to these temples. And the water was again, channeled through the conduits that run underneath the causeway and that water was utilized within the structures to facilitate the chemical reactions. But I just like this depiction because this is what it really would have looked like when these structures were in operation. So it's a very, very cool depiction. It is a cool depiction. I love stuff like this. It just it um, sets yeah. your mind. You know, it's so cool. Yeah, it's a great one. So good pull. Thanks for showing us. And that was kind of my, again, intention with the book was to kind of transport you back to that time period and experience firsthand what it was like to visit these structures. And we actually got a chance to finally go in this Valley Temple and see the harbor at Saqqara. So it was a very, very interesting trip during this last research expedition. So going back to my theory on the step pyramid, I believe that the step pyramid was designed to produce methane gas. And as I started to investigate the configuration of the step pyramid, I found an immediate correlation between that and the configuration of a methane gas producer. You have an inlet shaft, your primary digestion chamber, and an outlet shaft. And that's exactly what you find here in the configuration of the step pyramid. And as I began to dig a little bit deeper, I knew that methane gas, even today, is connected to cattle manure. And you see in all of these ancient civilizations, the deification of cattle. So it never resonated to me, the explanation of why cattle were so important in these ancient societies. But if you connect it to the science of chemistry, it really makes a lot of sense. So if you're extracting amon, this hidden thing, this gas from cattle manure, it would make sense that this would become a deified animal within your civilization because of the importance of the chemical that was being produced. 
Same thing with the symbolism of the scarab, right? So in the dynastic Egyptian religion, this dung rolling beetle is supposed to symbolize the rising sun and the progression of the sun across the sky. It also represents resurrection and all of these other kind of uh, religious related connotations. But again, the scarab is an esoteric symbol. So there's an interpretation that is intended for the public related to the religion. But at the end of the day, the scarab is a, a beetle that collects dung. So if you are producing methane gas on an industrial scale using cattle manure, well, what's the first step in the process? Collect the dung. Yeah, yeah. Right. So again, the, the explanation of this dung rolling beetle being symbolic of the sun never really resonated with me. But when I started to dig a little bit deeper, connected methane with cattle, and then it really all started to make sense. The, the true purpose of these symbols. You are shitting me. This is so simple. I mean, but it's so it's interesting. Right. And, and that's uh, I'm very pleased to say I've gotten a lot of positive feedback <laughs> about this material and like the comments on my YouTube video. And it's a it's a practical interpretation of these symbols. Right. It, re it really is, man. And so that was one of the most interesting things that I kind of uncovered in my research I didn't ever intend to find this out. But again, when I started connecting methane gas and cattle manure and cattle, it all really started to make sense. And you see, even in ancient India, the cattle are one of their most revered animals. And the ancient Indians were also responsible for tons of uh, ancient chemistry. So this is just showing the configuration of the bent pyramid, which is located directly next to the red pyramid of Dashur. And so today in our modern manufacturing process, you'll have your ammonia plant and there's another manufacturing facility located right next to it, which is used to produce urea. Um, my theory, and of course, urea is a solid compound that is also used for fertilizer because it has that ammonia. But again, for the dynastic, the pre-dynastic Egyptian civilization that built this, you would have used a portion of your ammonia solution that was being produced in the red pyramid for specific purposes, but then you would have also wanted to transform that aqueous solution into a solid compound that would be a lot easier to transport and distribute and apply to the crops, et cetera. And that's my theory for the bent pyramid is that it was designed to produce ammonium bicarbonate from that ammonia solution and the carbon dioxide byproduct that was produced inside of the red pyramid. Ammonia solution. What, so it was a wet ammonia solution. And what was the name of this stuff? Yeah, correct. So um, inside the red pyramid, the first chamber is going to produce a, a combination of hydrogen and carbon monoxide. In the second chamber, you're adding nitrogen into the mix and in the third chamber, you're producing ammonia gas in the upper portion of the reaction chamber, and they utilized water. So water would have also filled that final synthesis chamber, and the ammonia gas is highly soluble in water. And this is one of the mechanisms of operation in that final synthesis chamber was to immediately collect the gaseous ammonia being produced in the final synthesis chamber. It dissolves into water and then you collect that ammonia solution from the final synthesis chamber. So, but what was it called? Urea? Yeah. Yeah. So, so modern day, so you can make urea by reacting ammonia and carbon dioxide. 
And you can also create a very simple chemical called ammonium bicarbonate, which is essentially a mixture of ammonia and carbon dioxide. And that's what I believe was happening here in the primary reaction chamber of the bent pyramid is something called percolation. So this chamber on the left here would have been filled with your ammonia solution. And there are a number of inlet shafts and your carbon dioxide gas would have been percolated up through your ammonia solution, which produces a precipitation reaction that generates solid ammonium bicarbonate. Well, you can percolate a urea reaction with enough Chipotle, too. Is this where we get the word diarrhea? Because dynastic period made urea. It's an ammonia solution. It's watery shit. Is this where we get <laughs> right. the word diarrhea from? Is this where you're, is this your big spoiler, right, spoiler right. alert? So, I'm not sure the etymology of the... <laughs> Don't encourage so the word this, urea, I'm, I'm not really it. sure where that one comes from, um, but it's spelled U-R-E-A. Um, but again, I, I don't think this structure was designed to produce urea because there are some, some technical things that are involved in the modern day production that I don't think were possible within this structure. But ammonium bicarbonate, again, all you have to do is percolate carbon dioxide through an ammonia solution, and you can produce that solid compound that has the same chemical composition of urea, essentially. Mm. And these are some pictures from inside. This is from my 2021 research trip. We got a chance to go inside of the Bent Pyramid, and it is a very unusual structure in terms of the deterioration on the inside of these chambers. So I'm looking at the lower separation chamber here on the left from this staircase that goes up to the primary reaction chamber. And there is so much erosion and deterioration in this lower section that the walls are almost completely smooth. And there's never been a satisfactory explanation for that erosion on the inside of the structure that I've ever heard. But my belief is that the, so ammonium bicarbonate is a fairly caustic solution. And it's because of the production of that solid compound that produced the erosion in the lower chambers. Have you been able to swab or do like a chemical analysis in any of the crevices in there to tell you that that's what was being produced there? I mean, scientifically, the way that you've put it with all of the different um, chambers and different stages and the processes, it makes complete sense either way. I would just think the nail in the coffin for your idea, which already sounds super solid, uh, then would be to swab a little bit or to take some sort of chemical analysis if any of that stuff would have remained. I would think in that huge chamber with all the little cracks and crevices, just like we were talking about about the shaft before the, the conduit that led to that ornate bowl, that there would be some sort of residue that you could that you could look at that wouldn't be explained otherwise. Oh, yeah. No. So there there definitely is residue that can be sampled. Have I done that? No. Let me just say that because, again, it is highly, highly illegal to do those sorts of things inside of these pyramids. Yeah, but if you happen to like walk by with like a, you know, you get a couple of Q-tips from the from the hotel and you like just lean against the wall and swab your ass off and throw it in a little, uh, you know, film cap thing real quick. So my official answer is no, because it is highly illegal to take any sort of samples from inside these structures. Ah, wink, Official wink, answer. wink. Yes, sir. Um, and I've never killed a red-tailed hawk uh, that may or may not have been taking out my chickens because that is also illegal, uh, and I would never do that. So good right. call. I like and it. And so also something to note, so whenever you go to visit these structures, 
you're going to have an Egyptian um, tourist police guy with you escorting you to all of the structures. And this is a no nonsense guy. They have MP4s in their jackets and they are there to ensure that the tourists are safe and that the monuments are protected. So there is some, you know, security measures that are taken when you go to visit these sites. That being said, your licensed Egyptian tour guide and the security guard will never go inside of these structures. It's actually forbidden by the Egyptian government that they do not let the official tour guides go inside of these structures, go in alone when you are escorted by a normal tour guide. That's amazing. I would, I would think they'd be like right there with you, but no, they go, all right, we'll wait for you here. Right. So they, they aren't even allowed to go inside of the structures because there's so much information inside of these chambers that is incompatible with the dynastic Egyptian pharaonic burial theory. And when the people go inside these structures, there's no hieroglyphs. There's no indication whatsoever that these things are burials. And I think the guides don't have a good explanation for that either. And that's one of the reasons they don't let them go inside these things. And for the most part, they don't really encourage tourists to go inside of these monuments. You see these massive tour groups go up to Giza. They go walk around. They take a picture with the Sphinx. It's all for the gram. You know, these people are in their fancy dresses and the women are all dressed up and this, that, and the other. They spend five minutes at a site, take a couple of pictures, and then drive to the next one. When we go, we spend a full eight hours plus investigating each site individually. So I spent probably 10 hours at Saqqara during this last trip. I know we were there for at least 10 hours doing the um, investigation of the pyramids of Dashur. So again, it's it's very interesting the way that they conduct conventional tours in Egypt. They, they don't want people going inside these things for the most part. And if they do, it's in and out, you know, nothing to see here. Move on to the next one. Right. Did, did you climb that tower on the right? Oh yeah. Awesome. For sure. Yeah. So this is on the left. You go down the descending shaft that leads into the belly of the pyramid. There's a staircase that takes you up to this lower this is what I believe to be the separation chambers. So let me go back here. So this is the configuration. You go in the shaft here on the bottom. There's a staircase that takes you up this lower separation chamber into your upper separation chamber. And there's a huge staircase that takes you up to this connecting passage that leads from the upper portion of this chamber over here to your upper reaction chamber. God, how much fun is it to go explore one of those things? Oh, it's the best thing I've ever done, man. It looks and I'll like... go back every every single year for the rest of my life to see these things over and over again. And, um, the, you know, this last trip was my third time. It was more exciting than all of the previous trips. And it just keeps getting better every time. It's it's really amazing to be fortunate enough to be able to do this. I'm, I'm very, very grateful for the experience. Well, I promised Larry Paul, uh, who you know as well, uh, that I would go with him for the first time. So maybe we can do like a group trip, me, you and Larry. And we'll, we'll bring the wives and stuff and go out there. That'd be fun, man. Oh, yeah. So Larry's great. And, um, you know, he and I kind of run in the same circle of Egyptian tour guides. And I was just there and he's going back in a couple of weeks and we work with the same people. Um, of course, Larry works on a completely different aspect of the Egyptian pyramids. And that's one of the amazing things about these structures is, it doesn't matter what scientific discipline you're interested in. 
you're going to find it in the Egyptian pyramids because these are literally encyclopedias of ancient knowledge that incorporate all of the scientific developments that were produced by these civilizations from the mathematics to the geometry, to the construction, to the engineering, to the physics and the chemistry, no matter what you're looking for, you will find it encoded in these structures. And, you know, Larry is interested in the geometry and the design of the plateau. And that was one of the reasons that I was interested in your podcast is because I watched that one with Larry and you were trying to get him to talk about some of the alternative theories about the Egyptian pyramids. And, he does not get involved in that whatsoever. So I was like, hey, I got to contact this guy. He's going to love this theory. I'm um, grateful you did because I do love your theory. And I'm going to, uh, we'll talk off air about some other stuff I want you to, uh, I'm going to invite you to be a part of. But anyway, uh, yeah, and I love Larry's um, ideas about everything. He's so passionate about it. It's, it's so cool. And he'll, every now and then, and he won't say it out loud, but he'll like a couple of posts of mine that I'm just like, okay, Larry, all right. I oh, know yeah, you yeah. went for that, but okay. Uh, so yes, um, We'll we'll all have to go over there. I think that would be a lot of fun. But I do think that, the, I mean, you've only succeeded in making these already like boundlessly mysterious structures even more mysterious. But you've also kind of tied it up with what you just said about them being, you know, um, schools for everything. They're an encyclopedia for all of this stuff in, in their just existence. That's amazing. And, and one of the great things about the theories regarding the Egyptian pyramids is none of these things are mutually exclusive. Right. So Larry's research is very, very valid. Nothing he's saying is wrong, but it doesn't exclude my research regarding the interior function of these structures. And that's you know, what just I, because that's what I love about this. It's all yeah. inclusive. Everybody's right. You know, it's like, right. yeah, your theory is crazy cool, too. But it, it, it kind of they complement each other as well. It's fascinating, dude. Exactly. Yeah. It's um, again, they are. They're comprehensive structures. And again, my theory, I just wanted to look at something that addresses the function of all of these different structures, because that was one of the biggest deficiencies, in my opinion, is that you can't just look at the Great Pyramid and extrapolate what all of the rest of these pyramids were doing. So I come up with a theory for the Step Pyramid, the Red Pyramid, the Bent Pyramid, the Pyramids of Giza, and then, of course, tie those into the ancient structures across the planet. Again, I believe that there was an ancient civilization prior to the dynastic Egyptians that had the knowledge of construction and chemistry and physics. And again, these are what you hear of the quote unquote gods that you hear about in all these ancient civilization mythology. And there's truth to all of that mythology. Uh, absolutely. And we, we just had Micah Dank on and he talks about the astro theology, which is fascinating, Yeah, but also uh, the literal um, stories could be literal, you know, and this is where we relate things like sky gods and stuff to UFOs and aliens and whatnot. Um, but maybe they're just um, leftovers from an ancient civilization that survived after a cataclysm. Like the Hopi said that they were led into the inner earth to the survive a cataclysm by the ant people. Right. And yeah. so maybe oh, similar, that. similar things happened from entities all over the world that grabbed these bits of civilization tucked them down and then released them back. Now I've, and then you can launch off literally from that and say that that's the progenitors of the um, secret space program and that they're out there kind of living it off on some other planet, you know, uh, or that they figured out interdimensional travel. So that's what would explain some of those mysterious disappearances of these cultures. And I love all of this stuff, man. I think all of it's fascinating. And I a hundred percent agree with you that there is way too much evidence that there is an ancient culture of high advanced civilization that was global in connection, uh, long, long before we, we got here and we think we're real hot shit. Well, that was one of the interesting things in 
you know, discovering some of the things that I found in my research is that everything that we know today about industrial scale chemistry can be traced directly back to the way that these structures operated. And there's nothing new under the sun. And we kind of go through these cycles of knowledge and then the loss of knowledge. And then you see the knowledge brought back, but it all has a common origin. And I think the story of the the ancient history of human beings on this planet is incredibly fascinating. Again, I really love that circa 10,000 BC timeframe. Again, you know, there was a massive civilization in North America that was incredibly technologically advanced that had all of this knowledge, had physics and chemistry, and it was completely destroyed at the end of the last ice age. And I think that's where, like you mentioned with the Hopi ant people, they went and they hid underground to be able to survive this cataclysm. And when the waters receded and everything melted, they came back out and they had all this knowledge and they reestablished civilization with the knowledge from the previous civilization. And I think that was exactly the intention of the Egyptian pyramids was to solidify and encode these structures with all of that knowledge so that future generations like us could revisit these structures, reinterpret the knowledge and extract all of that information from inside of these structures, which I believe that's kind of what happened in the modern industrial revolution. Dude, and you know, I mean, they could have just easily written this stuff down and maybe they have. Maybe there are people out there that have found this information, don't want anyone to have it because like you said, I completely agree with that as well, that there are certain things that they tell you uh, for the public, you know, meant for the masses, right? And then there are other things that are not, uh, that are only meant for the special people that have that access to that information. This is when you get like into emerald tablets and all kinds of cool stuff, man. But they did preserve the knowledge for people to figure it out because maybe they were smart enough to know, okay, we'll write it down, but also we're going to have this here and build this monument so that people are going to go, holy shit, how did they do that? And then they'll be able to discover it in case somebody comes along and hides or destroys the knowledge that we've written down for it. We'll just leave an example as a puzzle for people to figure out. Correct. And so I do believe that there were some cataclysms or natural disasters that caused these structures to go out of operation prior to the beginning of the dynastic civilization. And at that point, you see this knowledge start to go underground and it began to be incorporated in the science of alchemy, right? It was no longer industrial scale chemistry, but it was being practiced in secret on a small scale to protect that knowledge so that it didn't get lost. And one of the biggest tragedies on the face of the planet is the destruction and burning of the library of Alexandria. And God only knows what was lost in that fire that destroyed all of the texts that could have possibly had all of this knowledge incorporated in it. But again, all of this knowledge was taken by the alchemists hidden under that veil of spiritual transformation when it was really in fact, practical chemistry. Do you think though, that they would be, that ignorant for super smart people to put all of their knowledge in one place in a perishable fashion. Like I, I think that the uh, whole burning of Alexandria and the wiping clean of, uh, you know, because yes, I do think that there was definitely some wisdom in there, but that could be like a psyop from the lizard people running the world that say, yeah, all that knowledge (laughs) was here, but we lost it. Kind of like what they say with NASA. Um, They're full of shit. And they say, oh, we can't go to the moon anymore because we lost that technology. We don't have that technology anymore. There's an astronaut quoted saying that several times. So it's it's kind of like that. Maybe there's this knowledge that's just been destroyed, but it hasn't. It, it wasn't all in one place because they were extremely intelligent. They wouldn't just do that. And they hid 
sure. it somewhere else. So when that and that may have even been like a false flag type thing. They may have burned their own damn library down to preserve and let the knowledge go underground. So then Absolutely. people thought that they lost it. And that's how you get like a secret society, for instance. And and there was a an ancient priesthood in the dynastic Egyptian civilization that was responsible for the maintenance of the science of chemistry. So they did preserve that knowledge in a group. And again, that's kind of what I'm implying in the development of this alchemical civilization. And then the development of modern chemistry in the Royal Society of Chemistry, it's the same lineage of people. Mm. And it's just been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And again, during the middle ages, it was all hidden under the veil of alchemy because these guys were being killed off. But again, it was, it was practical knowledge that has been maintained from the very, very ancient times hidden in all of these sorts of different esoteric societies or esoteric groups or whatever you want to call it. And now it's just become accepted modern chemistry when it's in fact a very, very ancient science and ancient practice. So there was a priesthood in Egypt that was responsible for maintaining this knowledge and it was not accept, uh, accessible to the general public. Like this type of knowledge, mathematics, science, chemistry, physics, that is what the esoteric doctrines of these ancient civilizations were. These were the secrets of the universe that were possessed by these quote unquote gods. And the general public didn't have any knowledge of that whatsoever. So again, there was a big difference between the keepers of this information and the knowledge that was consumed by the general public. Damn. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, man. Again, when you start again, pulling the thread a little bit, and that's why I'm, I'm constantly excited by this theory. It never gets boring to me. The more I look at it, the more interesting it becomes. And again, there's what I've talked about in the first book. And what we're talking about here is just kind of the, the tip of the iceberg. Well, this is amazing. And we'll have you on for all the icebergs that you uncover. All the levels of the icebergs. We want to know about it, dude. You're, you're a badass, man. But I appreciate that, man. So I just wanted to you know, kind of wrap this up real quick. I have no idea where we're at on time, but I'm sure I've been um, flapping my lips for <laughs> probably close to an hour. But again, so in, in my book, I provide an explanation for the function of the step pyramid, the red pyramid, the bent pyramid, the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Central Pyramid of Giza, and then I moved to the passage chamber structures of Ireland. And this is just a you know a diagram showing the configuration of the Red Pyramid. I mean, the Great Pyramid. And you can see that geology that we talked about before, the limestone body of the structure of the pyramid. And then here, the red granite that's utilized inside the primary reaction chamber. And I will say that you know there's a lot of uh, research about this subterranean chamber being a pump shaft. And I do believe that is in fact how this thing operated. And it was utilized to pump water into these upper chambers. And I've talked about this on my previous videos that all of these Northern descending shafts are actually pump shafts. So if you envision these structures being filled with water, all you have to do is put a stone block into this pump shaft and it's going to compress the water into the upper chambers here. And that's how all of those pump shafts operated is to manipulate the water level inside of these chambers. Do you think maybe part of the reason that the casing stones are missing because the shafts that go to the outside there may have led a clue to some sort of collection apparatus? Yeah. So according, again, it's hard to say how these things looked originally because they were destroyed 
way, way back in the ancient times. And that's one of the most difficult things when assessing these structures are the layers of construction because there's layer upon layer of dynastic Egyptians. And they you know, were there for thousands of thousands of years with many different decades of construction. And then you have Roman construction and Greek construction and all this other stuff on top of each other. So it's very difficult to say. That being said, these shafts leading out of the primary reaction chamber or the king's chamber did go to the outside of the structure, according to the conventional understanding of the pyramid. So there would have been a hole out here on the outside of the casing stone that allowed, I won't say how I think this structure operated, but again, the, the holes did go to the outside of the structure. And you find the same thing in the bent pyramid of Dashur. There is a shaft going out to the Western side of the structure and the casing stone on the outside is still in place in that structure. And you can see the shaft termination on the outside. So there is a hole in the casing stone that leads into the shaft system. And you would think that if it was a giant pump system, that's the only place for things to go. So you would think that there'd be some sort of collection apparatus up there. And that may be why we're missing the case casing stones. And maybe, you know, we're just throwing some fun stuff out there. So in, in yeah, so in my theory, this isn't moved to these shafts aren't utilized to remove anything, but it's actually used to deliver something into the primary mm -hmm. reaction chamber. I see. Yep. And there's actually evidence of some shaft systems that come out of the King's or the Queen's chamber, which I believe were your collection shafts. There's a big hole in the bottom of this chamber. That's kind of being indicated here. So, but in those shafts, there's also didn't, a they, big, didn't they find blocks that were blocking their pass? Cause they sent a little robot up them or is that the lower ones that come to it? Like yeah. A, so that's actually here. Yeah, in, inside the Queen's Chamber, that Gattenbrink's door and the investigation. So these shafts inside of the Queen's Chamber do not go to the outside of the structure. They terminate within the body of the pyramid. And it's inside this one on the northern side that they found Gattenbrink's door. They drilled through that little stone block and they found those two little copper wires yeah. hanging out of that piece of stone. And that's in here. See, and it's almost like those lower shafts for the Queen's Chamber could have facilitated some sort of electrical type of an apparatus or purpose. And then it doesn't negate the, what you're talking about, which is, again, so cool that this isn't an argument against something else to make yours correct. It's just an accentuation on, again, this already mysterious structure. That's awesome, dude. So I will say this. So the most popular theory about the Great Pyramid is Christopher Dunn's theory about production of electricity inside of this structure. And I'm not well-versed enough in his theory specifically to be able to comment on it, but I will say that he thinks that the queen's chamber was filled with a dilute solution of hydrochloric acid. And this could have possibly worked like a battery essentially, where this is your solution through which that electric current flows. I won't say there's a, there's a correlation between Christopher Dunn's theory and my theory about the Egyptian pyramids. I won't spoil the surprise, but yeah, we'll we're fishing back from, on for that. We're all for fishing sure. from the same river. Yeah. And that acidic solution you're talking about, just like with the Baghdad battery, I mean, it just has to be something acidic like citrus, like lemons or uh, orange or something Correct. like that. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. And basically an electrolyte solution that allows that current to flow through it. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting. Again, um, kind of the more you, you pull at the string, the more everything starts to unravel. Um, these are just some quick pictures from inside of the Great Pyramid. This is from my 2021 trip. 
And you can see here, man, the first time I went inside this grand gallery, it looks like this entire chamber has been baked at a very, very high temperature. Yeah, it does. And there is absolutely nothing that is inside of this chamber that's compatible with the pharaonic burial theory. Here on the right, you can see the termination of that shaft, one of those inlet shafts into the um, king's chamber. And this is that large rectangular granite container inside of that chamber. So it's it's a very mysterious experience to be inside of these structures. Let's put it that way. And we know that the staining on the wall isn't soot from torches because haven't they disproven that? And that's why they talked about um, them having some sort of electricity or had to have, even if they're shooting light off of mirrors, as the bends go, they wouldn't have had enough light. Yeah, so there was significant cleaning that was done inside of all of the Egyptian pyramids to remove staining from the walls of the chambers. Now, there's a lot of argument about what caused that staining. I will say this. Um, I, if you go into a confined space with a bunch of burning torches, yeah. Yeah. you are going to be in a very bad situation very, very quickly because of carbon monoxide. It's like being inside of a closed room with a fire burning inside of it. It is not a very good idea. So if they were exploring these um, chambers, I don't think they would have been using torches that are just b- burning off carbon and leaving soot stains. One right? even you for their, con- used, for their for an construction. Oil, an oil lamp or something of that nature that doesn't produce that carbon soot buildup. Because again, you're, you're going to die if you spend a lot of time inside this thing with a bunch of burning torches. No, absolutely. Uh, you're, the thing you need to stay alive is fuel for the fire. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So again, they, they've cleaned again. I, I have a bunch of pictures from my recent expedition that shows some of the staining remaining from the grand gallery. And there's also a bunch of stains here inside the, the primary reaction chamber. And so this is just, again, in my book, I talk about also the function of the central pyramid and So in all of my research, all of the indications is that the central pyramid is the most important structure on the Giza plateau. And I won't spoil the surprise because there's a lot of important stuff that I'm working on, kind of work in progress theory about this thing. But the Great Pyramid, the Central Pyramid and the Third Pyramid, they work in conjunction. The whole thing is a system that works together to create a certain outcome. Damn. All right. Well, we're going to have to have you back on to to tell us the surprise, man, because this is too fascinating. We will definitely keep up with you and um, pick up your story. This is awesome, dude. Hella cool, man. Yeah, it just again, the, the more I research it, the more the more interesting it gets. And again, these are just some pictures from inside of the central pyramid that kind of show what the inner chambers look like. And um Oh, I forgot. I I forgot. I included this slide, but I'm glad I did. So the final chapter in the book, right? A query returns to Ireland to investigate the passage chamber structures of Ireland and determine what chemicals those structures were producing. So down here at the bottom of the picture, you can see the curbstone that is outside of Newgrange. And I started to evaluate the symbols on the Newgrange curbstone in connection to chemistry. And I won't spoil the surprise because the the final chapter is my favorite chapter of the book. But you can see here at the bottom of this stone, there are undulating lines, which represent water filling the chamber. You can see the spirals here, 
The triple spiral symbol connects directly to the three chambers inside of the structure. And this represents air circulating inside of the chamber. You have here on the far left side of the stone, these diamond or square shapes. Those represent the primary reactant that was placed inside of these basins. And you see here these transformed squares or diamonds coming out of the structure, which represent the product that was being produced. And this Damn. connects directly to our conversation about ancient magic and symbols, because these are always interpreted as magic symbols. And even according to the Irish mythology, Newgrange was the dwelling place of the Dagda, which was an ancient wizard of the Tuatha right? So we know that wizardry and magic is in fact chemistry. So this wasn't a burial. It was a chemical reaction structure. And right out in front of it, they have the chemical reaction equation. This is essentially an equation for a chemical reaction sequence depicted in symbols. Damn, dude. And that's this the, is my favorite, my favorite part of the theory. And again, I, I hope that if anybody buys the book that you get to the last chapter, because it really, it ties everything together. And when you look at these, like even from the alchemical symbols, right? Those symbols are re representative of chemical compounds. And that's exactly what you see here on this curbstone. This is so interesting, dude. So I think that was the last slide in the presentation, unless I've snuck something in here that's going to surprise me as well. I forgot that I included this one, but I'm, I'm really happy I did because this is one of my favorite. And I went to Ireland. So in 2017, I went to Egypt for my first trip. I knew that there was a connection between the pyramids and Newgrange. And that was my next trip. I booked a trip to Ireland in 2018 so that I could go research these structures in person. And it was a direct result of my experience in Ireland that I was able to write the last chapter of the book because I had a theory or a hypothesis for what those structures were doing. But after my visit to um, Ireland, I was finally able to put all the pieces together. And then this is the last, last slide, just a quick plug for the book. My website is thelandofchem.com. My YouTube channel is The Land of Chem, C-H-E-M. My Instagram, again, at The Land of Chem, uh, website, landofchem.com. And I think that was pretty much it, man. Well, yeah, there we go. Absolutely incredible. Uh, I'm incredibly impressed. I can't wait. Uh, like I said, I want to, we got some other stuff in plan here, so we'll, we'll definitely do that, but I'm just blown away by the theory, man. I think it's fascinating. I it's, it's absolutely incredible. So thank you very much. This was unbelievable, dude. Awesome. Man. <laughs> um, I was very, very excited to come on and do this and, um, I'm just really happy and appreciative of the opportunity to come on here and talk about the book. Um, again, I've really enjoyed talking with you, man. And I look forward to working with you on the future on some other projects. <laughs> no, definitely. We will definitely do that, dude. Well, you are a badass. I will of course link all the ways to find you down in the show notes, guys, check this out. This is a fascinating theory. Uh, you know, if you want to go down as far as rabbit holes go, this one's incredible. I mean, and you took a bunch of heady, kind of information uh, and made it very palatable and you nailed your argument thank dude. You. i think this is incredible so well done my friend it. we will definitely stay in contact uh thank you so much again dude we'll do it again soon my pleasure man thank you so much and look forward to the next one huge shout out to jeffrey drum for spending some time with us on the show uh his book and all the ways to find him go check out his youtube channel especially uh it is going to all be linked down in the show notes down there so y'all just go click on that go find him 
Awesome guy. Uh, I know that that resonated with a lot of you guys. Uh, it's fascinating. It's fun to think about this kind of stuff. And his presentation was amazing. The pictures of the insides of the pyramids. And it's just awesome, man. It's some Indiana Jones shit. And we all love that. And there's just some deep part of us, like a childlike, this is amazing part of us. It's so fascinating with this stuff. And it's just really, really cool. So um, also, uh, he's going to be setting up like some tours and stuff like that. And we may get in on something like that next year. So just long game play. If you guys want to go to Egypt or something, we may be doing kind of a group um, run around down there to kind of go get, you know, boots on the ground, go figure this stuff out, go touch these things for ourselves. It's going to be so cool. So uh, more on that later. But anyway, go check show notes for all that stuff. Down there as well is the link to the website, uh, expandingrealitypodcast.com. Links from there then to all the socials. It's kind of a central hub for everything for the t-shirts and all that good stuff. Rockfin is down there. Very grateful to be a part of that platform. And then, um, yeah, so that's all the stuff that you should need from us is going to be located down there. So go check it out. Um, While you guys are exploring this amazing planet that we live on or place that we live on, wherever the hell this thing is, uh, go out into your world and just be nice to every animal, entity, everybody that you come across. Buy a coffee or a meal or a bottle of water or something like that, guys. Uh, It doesn't have to be massive, but it makes a massive difference in everyone around you. And especially for you, these ripple effects are immeasurable, but they're incredible. Uh, Also, get the hell out of the left-hand lane while you're doing that. We're trying to raise the vibe here, people. You coasting in the left-hand lane, being slow as hell, it's not helping anybody. So you're slowing down progress of ascension. Get the hell out of that left-hand lane. Uh, Beyond all of that, guys, go out into this beautiful place, whatever the hell it is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.